So last week in our series on the road to Easter, we learned about Jesus' last supper with his disciples. And Mike failed to explain the real question of why they all sat on the same side of the table instead of sitting all the way around the table like normal people would do. But he did tell us a lot of things about the meaning of the Last Supper and, and the symbolic significance of it and, uh, and lots of things. So we learned about the first Passover and the covenant that God made with his people uh, in the time of Moses when he was leading them out of slavery in Egypt. Um, and, uh, and we learned about how Jesus, as he celebrated the Passover at the Last Supper, told his disciples that he was initiating a new covenant um, as he offered his body and his blood as a new sacrificial lamb. And during the Last Supper, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, left early. And uh, Jesus knew that he was going to go and get the guards to arrest Jesus, and that he would soon be on trial and would die. The other guys, they all thought that Jesus wanted Judas to go out and buy some supplies for the festival or maybe make a donation to the poor, which was part of the typical Passover thing as people would make donations. And so they thought that was what Judas was doing, but Jesus knew. And then when the supper was finished, Jesus and the disciples went out to a garden, which was on the side of the Mount of Olives. Now, I got to go to Jerusalem uh, some years back and saw the Mount of Olives, and uh, yeah, it's, they call it a mountain, but uh, you should not think about the Chugach uh, when you think about uh, the Mount of Olives. It's more of kind of a big hill, um, but there is like a, a fairly steep valley that goes between the, the city of Jerusalem, and you go down a valley and then up the other side of the Mount of Olives. And somewhere on the side of that hill... Um, is where this garden was. And so the disciples, they went out through the gate in the city walls, down the hill, and then at least partway up the other side to a garden there in, uh, in the outskirts of Jerusalem. And on the way there, Jesus continued to do some teaching, as he had been throughout the Last Supper. Jesus was, was doing teaching as they were walking. And they probably must have walked by a vineyard, which uh, prompted Jesus to talk about the vine and the branches and... Uh, and, and, and given that uh, lesson, and then he gave them instructions about the coming of the Holy Spirit, and he prayed that they would be unified after he left them, and he told them that people would know that they were his followers by the way that they loved one another, and, uh, and, and, and various other teachings and things, and then they arrived at the garden. And the Bible says in, in Mark chapter 14 is where uh, our main text is here, Mark chapter 14, if you want to pull that up on your phone or open your Bible there. We're going to start reading in verse 32 of Mark 14. It says, they went to a place called Gethsemane. Uh, that was the name of the, the garden that they went to. Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. So why is Jesus so upset at this point? Um, why is it that he says his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death? It's because he knew what was coming, right? Uh, and he knew that he had a choice to either face it or not. 
Now, it's one thing to face suffering and you know it's unavoidable. Then, you know, there, there's nothing to do. You just grit your teeth and here it comes. And, and there's, there's no, uh, no dilemma involved. But for Jesus, he had a choice. Um, he could either choose to endure the suffering that was coming or he could choose to escape from it. And it was difficult for him to choose the suffering. Now, of course, it's perfectly normal for all of us to not want to die. And Jesus knew that his uh, death was going to be an extremely painful death. Uh, He knew that he would be beaten, that he'd be whipped, that he'd be tortured before it finally came to an end. But I, I don't think that the anticipation of physical suffering and death was what had Jesus worked up here. I don't think that that is a sufficient explanation for the difficulty that Jesus was having here in the garden. Um, This uh, painting here, this is a famous painting of the death of Socrates. Um, Socrates, uh, if you read Plato's stories about how this all came to be, very uh, interesting stuff. Um, Socrates had been unjustly condemned to die by the courts. And so his friends made a plan that they would bribe some guards and get Socrates out of the prison and he could escape into exile rather than going through with the uh, unjust execution. But Socrates refuses on principle. He says, no, I have agreed to obey the laws of the land and it does not matter that I disagree with the outcome of this particular trial. I do not get to be a judge over the law. The law judges me. And if the law is wrong in this case, in my opinion, I still have to follow the law. And so he says he will not escape and he will instead uh, follow through with his death. And so you see here, uh, the the boy in in the red there is holding out a cup for Socrates to take. That is the hemlock poison that Socrates is about to drink. And uh, as he... uh, goes through with his execution. And, uh, and it's quite a interesting, uh, you know, this is just a painting, but it, it does follow uh, the way that Plato describes it. Um, so in the final moments here, Socrates is still teaching his students, and he's telling them how it would be unreasonable for a philosopher like him to fear death, because it's when you die that you are most likely to find the wisdom that you have been seeking your whole life. And you can see in the painting that all of his friends are much more upset than the great philosopher himself, right? They, all of their heads are down and they're, they're bowed over with, with grief as he goes down, but not Socrates, head held high, finger pointing. He is bold in the face of death as he, um, as he takes the poison. We could also think of martyrs from the Bible like Stephen, who spoke calmly of his vision of Jesus as he was dying uh, and asked God to forgive the people who were killing him by throwing rocks at him until he died. Or we could look at the apostles in the book of Acts, chapter 5, where they were arrested and they were whipped because they refused to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And the Bible says when they left the place where they'd been flogged, it says the apostles left the place rejoicing because they had been counted worthy 
of suffering disgrace for the name. But Jesus saw what was coming for him, and it says he was deeply distressed and troubled. His soul was overwhelmed with sorrow. So the question is, why did Jesus respond with so much more difficulty than these other martyrs? Well, it's because what Jesus was about to face was so much more than a normal physical death. It was not the physical pain that had him worried. He did not fear the whips of the Romans. I mean, I'm sure he did fear the whips of the Romans, but that was not the thing that had him at this point in the garden. Um, Because Jesus' death was no normal death. His death was the payment for sin. And here's what the Bible says about that in the book of 2 Corinthians. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus had no sin. He was innocent. There was no hint of guilt in him that could have caused him to deserve this in the least. He was perfectly sinless. But God made him to be sin for us. God credited our sins to Jesus' account. And he was made guilty of all the bad things that his people have done over all the years of human history. So you think about that for a moment. There have been some pretty bad things that have been done by people whose sins were put on Jesus on this day. Here's another way that the Bible puts it in another place. This is in uh, the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 24, where it says, uh, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So what sins have you committed that make you guilty before God? You might think you know, but you don't even know. (laughs) None of us really understand the depth of our own sin because we tend to justify our own actions and say, that, that, was, that was okay. What I did there was not wrong. And we tend to minimize the seriousness of things even when we admit that what we did was wrong. Well, it wasn't that bad. We don't really understand the guilt that we have before a holy God. But Jesus understood it. And he wasn't just going to take on the guilt of one person or two people or a hundred people. When he went to the cross, he would bear the sins 
of all people who have ever lived and ever will live. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. That was a heavy weight to bear. And when he went to the garden, he was deeply distressed. And it was this guilt which was of greater consequence than the physical pain that would follow. One of the great consequences of that guilt, as he bore it on the cross, was that he was abandoned by God the Father. When he is suffering on the cross, he quotes from Psalm 22, he cries out with a loud voice, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned his back on Jesus when he bore the guilt of our sins. And I know that's one of those Trinity things that's kind of hard for us to understand, Jesus and the Father and exactly how that all worked. But, but part of the punishment that Jesus bore for us was God's wrath against our sin. And Jesus was praying in the garden. He knew that that wrath was coming. And he knew that the suffering of God's wrath against sin was about to come to him. And that is what had Jesus uh, dealing with that in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. That was what had him sorrowful to the point of death. So one of the other pastors that I was uh, using to study this story and comparing uh, and, and learning about how to, how to teach this, uh, he used a, a great illustration from J.R.R. Tolkien, and since I'm also a big Tolkien fan, I'm like, I got to use that idea. So I took this idea from this other guy. So here, here's what he's uh, compared it to, a story from the book The Hobbit. Now, if you know the story of The Hobbit, uh, or if you don't know the story, let me summarize real quickly. Uh, Bilbo Baggins, the little hobbit, goes with these dwarves to the Lonely Mountain, which uh, the Lonely Mountain is the old ancient kingdom of the dwarves, which has been taken over by a dragon. And the dragon has uh, wiped out everybody and is living down in the bottom of the mountain with all the gold and treasure and everything. And these dwarves are going to go and try to take it back. And they arrive there, and this part of the story happens right after they have finally opened up the secret entrance that they can use to get down into the mountain. And once they've got the secret entrance open, they're all afraid to go in there. because <laughs> so there's a dragon down in there. And so what do they do? They say, Bilbo. Here's your time. This is, what you, we, this is what we brought you for. You need to go down in there and check it out for us. Um, so they send Bilbo in to spy things out. And this, so the secret entrance is a tunnel that leads deep into the mountain, and Bilbo starts down the tunnel. And then here's what he's thinking to himself from, from the book here. He says, if only I could wake up and find that this beastly tunnel was my own front hall at home. He did not wake up, of course, but went still on and on till all sign of the door behind had faded away. He was altogether alone. Soon he thought it was beginning to feel warm. Is that a kind of a glow I see coming right down ahead there, he thought? And it was. As he went forward, it grew and grew. It was a red light steadily getting redder and redder. It was at this point that Bilbo stopped. Going on from there, 
was the bravest thing he ever did. The tremendous things that happened afterward were as nothing compared to it. He fought the real battle in the tunnel alone before he ever saw the vast danger that lay in wait. So this is similar to Jesus' experience in the garden, right? This is where the real dilemma hit him. This is where the real decision had to be made. Later, when he actually faced the whips, when he actually stood at the trial, when he actually was crucified, he was as brave and, and faced it as, as, uh, with his head high as much as any martyr that's ever been martyred. But here, as he's preparing, the decision has to be made. Will he continue on the road to Easter or will he flee? It's the decision to face the danger, the decision to continue down the road that you are on, no matter how horrible what lies ahead. The great branch in the road came at Gethsemane. And it's, it's our next verse here in, back in Mark 14 that tells us exactly what Jesus' struggle was. Verse 35 in Mark 14, where it says, Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So here in these verses, Mark gives us a summary of the prayer, and then he gives us a sample of the content of what Jesus actually prayed. So his summary is Jesus prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. So that's kind of poetic language, but what it means is for the hour to pass is that he was asking if it's possible that this time of suffering would not have to happen. He was praying and letting God know he did not really want to go through this. He prayed that if possible, the hour would pass from him. Abba, Father, he said. Abba is uh, not just a band in Sweden, but it's also, it's an Aramaic word. Uh, Abba is an Aramaic word for father. Uh, Aramaic was Jesus' uh, first language, the language that he grew up speaking. And, uh, and the word Abba there is a very informal kind of a word that uh, children would use for their, their fathers. It's not the, the, the more typical word for a father, and it, but it was the way that Jesus talked to God. Um, and it was the way that he expressed his close relationship with God. He's not praying to a God who is aloof and far away. He's praying to his Abba. And he says, everything is possible for you. So Jesus knows that God is all wise, all powerful, all knowing. There must be some other way. And he says, take this cup from me. That is a direct appeal. Jesus tells the Father exactly what he wants. 
take this cup from me. I do not want it. And the cup, of course, is, is, is a metaphor for the wrath of God, to drink the cup of God's wrath. But Jesus wants out. He does not want to go through with the plan to have all these sins placed on him. He does not want to suffer the sins or suffer the penalty for all of our sins. Yet, Jesus says, yet, there's more to this decision than what Jesus wants. He wants the hour to pass. He wants the cup to be taken away. Yet, there's another factor here that outweighs his own desire to avoid suffering. He says, yet, not what I will, but what you will. Now, I I am sure that Jesus' own desires at this point were not totally one-sided, right? We're all familiar with the idea of having multiple uh, things that you want that are in conflict with one another. Um, We want uh, more than one thing at a time, and you can't have uh, it all like, for instance, simple example that we can all relate to, we all want to eat tons of junk food, but we also want to be healthy, right? So, conflicting desires. So, what do you, you can't, and Jesus, I'm sure, had some conflicting desires here as well. Um, he knew that what he was about to go through would result in a huge benefit. But he also knew that it was going to be awful. And at that moment, he was not wanting it. What I will, in Jesus' prayer here, was to skip it for the hour to pass from him and for the cup to be taken away. Now, it's good for us to notice here that that this desire on Jesus' part was not really based on pure logic and reason. Right? Jesus was not dispassionately evaluating the situation, weighing the pros and cons, doing a cost-benefit analysis, and, and factoring it all together, and deciding that salvation was not worth his suffering. What was happening with Jesus here is that his emotions were a big part of his decision-making process. Jesus was an emotional man, and his emotions were swaying his reason at this moment, and he was wanting to choose to eat the junk food. He wanted to skip the suffering and forget about the pain. So, was it wrong for Jesus to want that? Was it wrong for his emotions to play a large part in his thinking? Clearly not, right? Jesus was perfect. We just saw he knew no sin. He never did anything wrong. But he was not Mr. Spock. He was not without emotion. His emotions were a part of him. God made him with emotions. He made us with emotions. Our emotions are not our weakness. 
They are a part of what God wants us to be like. And Jesus, the ideal human, experienced great emotion in the Garden of Gethsemane. But as much as his emotions were a part of his experience here, he did not allow the dread of the suffering to come to rule over him and and determine his decision. Because he did make a choice. Using his rational thinking and his emotions, he made a choice. And he said, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus knew that his role was to obey the Father. And because the will of the Father was a part of Jesus' decision-making process, his own will was changed. Kind of like when we really want to eat another half a dozen cookies, but we also want to be healthy, and so we make the decision, I'm only going to eat two more cookies, or maybe three. Um, And we... We have conflicting desires, but we make a choice to do the right thing. Jesus wanted to skip the cross, but he also wanted to do what his father wanted him to do. And so he chose to go to the cross. And the deciding factor was that he knew that when there's a disagreement between what he was wanting to do and what the father was wanting him to do, the correct choice was to do what the father wanted him to do. Now, you might find this hard to believe, but that happened to me once. I wanted a certain thing, and God wanted something else for me, right? Okay, it happened to me more than once. Uh, It happens all the time, right? Um, We have desires that are against God's will for us. So, the obvious lesson from this passage is that just as it was for Jesus, how much even more is it for us that we must submit to the will of God? Right? Our motto in these situations needs to be the same as Jesus. Not what I will, but what you will. Even when it seems like we're really going to miss out on something that we would really enjoy... Not what I will, but what you will. Even when it seems like uh, it's really going to be a pain in the neck, not what I will, but what you will. When we're tempted to sin, not what I will, but what you will. When we're tempted to be lazy and selfish, not what I will, but what you will. See, Jesus is our model here. We are called to live the way that Jesus lived, including submission to the will of God. The Bible says in in, in 2 Peter 2, verse 21, it says, "...to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps." Remember a few years back when everybody was wearing those bracelets that said WWJD? Some of you might not remember quite that long ago, but I remember. I had one of those bracelets. I had a few of them, in fact. Um, uh, who remembers what that stood for? What would Jesus do? Exactly. 
Um, and the bracelets uh, were a spin-off in the late 1990s um, from a book that was actually written in the late 1890s that was called In His Steps. Um, and in that book, Christians were uh, encouraged that whenever they came to a decision in life, they would ask themselves, what would Jesus do? And then they should do what Jesus would do in that situation. And then they would follow in his steps, just like the verse we just read there. That's where the title of that book came from. Jesus left us an example that we should follow in his steps. And that includes not what I will, but what you will. But here's my question for us this morning. Is Jesus only an example for us of righteous living? Is Jesus like other religious leaders who show their followers how they ought to live and how they ought to relate to God? Does Jesus teach us important things about God the way that Moses or Isaiah did? That is a very popular way of thinking about Jesus, um, that he was a, a, a great teacher, a great leader, a, a great example to us. Um, he was a great man. He was a reformer of the Jewish religion. He set the stage for his followers to break through the racial barriers and create a, a version of Judaism that would appeal to people of all races and, uh, and people groups. Jesus uh, taught a very high morality with his instructions to love our enemies, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, care for the poor, and even to submit our own desires to the will of God. But some, some religious people, they stop there. Jesus was a great teacher, and he was a great moral example for us. And we should follow his teachings, and we should follow his example, and that's what we get from Jesus. But that's not what we believe. Yes, Jesus was all those things. But I believe that Jesus was much more than a great teacher and a great example. Because here's the thing. If we read this story about Jesus in the garden and the way that he faced extreme suffering because he was in submission to the will of God, and the only thing we take away from the story is that we should go out and do what Jesus did, I'm going to be in trouble because I am not able to live like Jesus did. <laughs> my desire to sin often outweighs my desire to submit to God's will, and I choose to sin. And I see from this story how I am supposed to live. I am supposed to give God's will the priority in my life and sacrifice my own desires in order to follow God's plan. And it's really good for me to know that and to see Jesus' example of that. Um, it's good for me to look at Jesus' example and to know that he has left me an example so that I should follow in his steps. But if that's the plan for how I'm supposed to deal with the sin in my life, if I am left to stand at the judgment seat of God at the end of my life and attempt to justify myself because I made an effort 
to, 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 to deny myself, to take up my cross, to follow Jesus, I'm doomed at the judgment if that's the way of my defense. I need more than Jesus' teaching, as great as it was. I need more than Jesus' perfect example of how to live to please God. I need a Savior. And what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane is a Savior on the road to Easter. In this garden, as he goes to prayer, he is faced with a choice. Follow his own desires, that the hour might pass and that the cup will be taken away, or go to the cross where he will pay the price for my sin. Here's what the Bible says about that transaction. Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 3 says, all of us also lived among them at one time, that is, lived among the sinful people of the world. All of us were part of that, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. See, despite my sin, Jesus had great love for me. Despite my sin, God remains rich in mercy. And so because of his great love for you and me, Jesus went to the cross He did not want to endure that suffering, but he did it for us. His love, his mercy, and his grace sent Jesus to the cross. And so, even though I try to follow in his steps and I fail, it isn't about my goodness. Christianity is not about me doing the right thing course, I should follow in his steps. I should do the right thing. But that's not what it's all about. It's all about the fact that Jesus did the right thing. He went to the cross for us. He suffered the penalty of sin so that we do not need to suffer that penalty. Jesus is our example, but he is so much more than an example. So, put your faith in Him. Trust in Him as the source of your salvation. Not simply as a teacher of how to save yourself, but as the one who saves you. And then, because of His great love for us, He will accept us as His dearly loved children, and He will forgive all of our sins, and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your perfect plan to pay the price for our sins through Jesus' death on the cross. 
And we pray that uh, you would help us to have real faith in Jesus' payment for sin as our only means of righteousness. May we trust in Jesus, trust in his example, and trust in his payment. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.